Hello and welcome to Through the Gates, the podcast where Indiana University Bloomington meets its community, talks to it and discusses interesting topics and meets interesting people. My name is Elaine Monaghan. I'm a professor of practice and journalism at IU Media School and I'm here hosting today's podcast with Violet Barron, an MA student in the Media School and uh, happy to be here with you, Elaine. Yeah, it's great to see and hear you, Violet. We, are, we can see each other on Zoom. You will only have to hear us. And I am extremely excited to have as our guest here today, a colleague and friend known to many, Jeffrey C. Isaac. Hi. Hello, Jeffrey. Hi. <laughs> Jeff is the James H. Rudy Professor of Political Science here at IU Bloomington. He was Editor-in-Chief of Perspectives on Politics a flagship journal of the American Political Science Association from 2009 to 2017. That's a long time. And in 2017 was awarded APSA's Frank J. Goodnow Award for Distinguished Public Service to the Profession for his work. He's published five books, edited two anthologies, and published over 75 articles and essays. And I bet the number is higher since this was written. Jeff regularly writes for a public forum called Democracy Seminar about political issues at home and around the world, and also regularly contributes to Common Dreams. Um, Jeff, how did you come to be in Bloomington? um, Well, I'm from New York City originally. I went to Queens College as an undergraduate and then did my graduate work at Yale, but basically was in the city every weekend with my fiance who became my wife, uh, Debbie Kent, who's now my ex-wife, and, but I'm a dear, dear friend. And uh, our son Adam was born in 1986. And that year we decided we needed to get out of the city. So I applied for a bunch of jobs. Um, they were all Ivy League jobs, except this job. Um, my dream job was Stanford. I got that job and turned it down for this job. They all thought it was crazy. So we moved here in 1987. We moved here because we thought this would be a good place to raise a family and to live. And it is a good place to raise a family and to live. That's why we stayed. I think that's a very interesting fact that I did not know about you, that you turned down a job at Stanford to come and be in Bloomington. That says a lot about our fabulous campus. It does. And also maybe about Debbie and I. And I actually thought that, what? Well, yes. So, and it was a, it was a great decision. I mean, uh, I love Bloomington. It's a great place to be. And you play a very important role in the life of, political discourse here and further afield. Um, so I, I guess I'm, I want to ask you about this, right? Because you really are performing um, um, a very important role as a, as a public intellectual. You're very public in your views. Uh, you talk a lot about the political situation that we're in, which can be a sort of perilous path to walk these days. So I guess my first question on that subject really is just, I just want to ask you, how do you see that role? Like, how, why, how, how is it that you're so comfortable being out in public, having the, these difficult conversations about our political environment? Well, part of it is just my background and the person I came to be by growing up in my family in Queens. And, you know, we, my brother and I, my brother's three years younger than me. His name is Gary. He's an attorney up in Chicago. My brother and I were always arguing with my father. My mother was not very involved in these arguments. We were arguing around the dinner table. Plus, you know, I think I, I think I'm a, a typical New Yorker in the sense that, you know, I have a pretty thick skin, and I'm 
I'm not very uh, afraid of very many things and certainly very many people. And so, and I've always been very outspoken, always. So it just comes naturally to me as a, the person that I am. And I also care about the world, so. Do you think that New York ethos has followed you to Bloomington, which is a pretty different place? I think being outspoken is such a New Yorker thing, right? How does it work out here? Oh, that's funny. At first I think, well, actually we had a cleaning lady that talked, that referred to us as a foreign couple. I don't know what it was about us. Maybe it was out the fact that we were Jewish or whatever. But I mean, it's true that, that my style uh, it took a while for me to find the right uh, way of being me in the classroom. But, um, you know, I mean, I'm, I, I've made the, I mean, I, I'm very much a person of Bloomington. My kids both grew up here. I'm completely comfortable here. It is true that in the context of Bloomington, I'm like a badass, but if I, when I go back to New York, I'm just like a, another guy. And I, I had this experience, like, I don't know, maybe it was around 15 years ago now, but I'll never forget it. I went to the garden to see the Knicks play. I used to go all the time. And then I became a Pacer fan when I moved here. And I, I went to the garden and like, there were all these really tough, like hardcore people. And I felt like such a Hoosier. <laughs> but, but when I came home, as soon as I come home, I feel like a New Yorker in Bloomington. But at this, you know, so, so um, Bloomington is an interesting place to be a New Yorker, to be a New York Jew. But I, it's a fine place for me to be those things. I think it's also a good place to be Scottish, I have decided. I don't know about that. Um, I, 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 don't, I can't comment on that. <laughs> are there other Scots? Well, it's funny. I, yeah. There are some Scots in Bloomington, not too many. There's a few. Um, I'm not sure if I've found them all yet. I will say that the landscape here reminds me more of Scotland than anywhere else I've lived um, outside of Scotland. So I feel at home here as well for that reason. Um, but um, yeah, so, so Jeff, um, I'm also really kind of intrigued uh, to hear your views about what, what you think is gonna happen next. You've written a lot about the election, about the threat to the election, some of your columns, frankly, practically predicted what would happen on January the 6th, if not precisely, but generally, you were obviously concerned that we were facing um, potentially an unprecedented moment in American political history. And so I'm just really interested to hear your take on how things are now and where you think they're going. Well, you know, um, it's a little too early to tell. I'll confess that... Um, uh, I was very, and I've written about this. I mean, I, I was relieved when uh, when Biden was inaugurated. And, you know, Biden was not my candidate in the primary, but I certainly strongly supported him in the election. When the, when the transition of power took place, I was very relieved. And I, I've been on high alert for years and just very agitated and stressed out by Trump and Trumpism, which is why I've, I wrote thousands of pages about it. Um, and so, and I'm still a little bit... Um, just kind of relaxing, <laughs> you know, um, watching. I think Biden's doing a pretty good job. We, uh, um, but it, I also am very mindful of the fact that the Republican Party remains uh, a, a party that is both obstructionist and in cer certain fundamental ways, hostile to democracy. I think what's happening this weekend with the CPAC uh, convention and the way everyone's falling in line behind Trump is a sign of this. So I think there's gonna be some, um, some rough days ahead and I am concerned about that, 
um, I vowed that I would stop writing about Trump. And I hope I can, I hope I can stick to that for a while. As soon as Trump really gets in the public eye again, I'll probably have no choice. But I'm, I was hoping, and I'm still hoping, that he won't loom very large. And quite honestly, I think probably the most important development that constrained Trump and thereby uh, helped us protect our democracy was his deplatforming by Twitter and Facebook. And that's a very disturbing thought. And, but it's also obvious that he could, he could have never become who he was or is without Twitter and Facebook. And he no longer has that access to the public. And hopefully that will inhibit him. Hopefully the lawsuits will inhibit him. Hopefully the successes of a democratic agenda will inhibit him, although that remains to be seen. So I'm concerned, but I'm certainly feeling a lot better than I was um, uh, on election day, I was not celebrating. You know, I said very publicly, yeah, you know, um, until the inauguration is done, this is not over. So, and it's really, in a way, this is still not over. It's just a different phase of a, a long protracted political process. Yeah, you, you said uh, sort of tellingly, until Trump returns to the public eye. So do you think that that's a given? Do you think we haven't seen the last of him in politics? Well, it's clear that he wants to be seen. He's doing he's giving the keynote address at the CPAC conference this weekend. Um, clearly, uh, he, he's reemerged from his privacy, and you know it appears to be the case that he's kind of like throwing his weight around the Republican Party and talking about having an impact on nominations and maybe even announcing another run for the presidency. I would not be surprised if in his keynote speech at CPAC, he announced that he was running, uh, whether or not he runs. I mean, Trump doesn't have to say what's true, but, and it, but it would be exactly the kind of, uh, let's say a little bit jolt to the media system that might get him a lot of attention that he needs because he's not getting it on Twitter or Facebook anymore. Um, but if he announces that he's campaigning, then uh, the media is going to have to cover him more. So I don't think he's out of the public eye. Um, and I honestly never thought that the Republican Party was like involved in a struggle for its soul after he left. You know, and I, I never I never for a second thought that Mitch McConnell had changed, you know, his colors in any way. And I think the Republican Party at the national level, but even worse at the state level, is a very anti-democratic party. You know, uh, the Brennan Center recently came out with a report. There have been like over a hundred pieces of uh, legislation proposed or passed in Republican-controlled state legislatures to, uh, to limit voting, you know, uh, to basically uh, curtail voting rights. And it's it's all very dangerous. And even if Trump, so give, give, go on. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, even if Trump, you know, I, I really do believe that a lawsuits and possibly even federal prosecution will hamper him. But I also believe, and I want to say this with all like uh, proper uh, uh, wokeness, he is not a man in good shape. Okay, he's like a gigantic tub of lard. I'll say that. And how is he going to run a campaign? 
Like, uh, could he even survive a campaign? He's not a young man. He wasn't a young man before. He's, so I, I think there are a lot of reasons to be hopeful that ultimately he will not be able to run for presidency again. But he's definitely there. His kids are there. His daughter-in-law is apparently going to run in North Carolina for a Senate seat. They're all behind him. And it's very disturbing. Right. I mean, do you, so I guess this is sort of, in a way, it's a, the question is obvious, but I, I'm really interested in what you have to say about this. Um, like, you're describing an individual. So to what extent is Trump the individual, the force here? And to what extent is he a product of our political environment? He's completely a product of that political environment. There's absolutely no question about it in the sense of uh, he's, a, he's a product of our the, the digital media world. He's a project of uh, the, the reality TV and culture of celebrity world. And he's also the product of a long-term development of the Republican party. There's absolutely no question about these things. It's true in some ways, Trump was a symptom more than a cause, but symptoms could be deadly. You know, like I've used this analogy sometimes when talking with my students. So in 2014, like I had prostate cancer and prostate cancer, I'm fine now. Prostate cancer is not, is like, a, it's probably mainly genetic, but like, you know, there are all kinds of possible causes and there are all kinds of like deep ways that you can, um, you can, uh, you know, change your diet or your ways of living to be healthier. But the fact is, when you have like cancer in your prostate, I know everyone doesn't agree with this, but like you need to have it removed. Okay. Now I had, you know, proton radiation treatment, but like basically the, 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 the illness needed to go. What, what its cause was almost doesn't even matter. And I think at this point, in some ways, the, the like structural historical conditions of Trumpism are less important than the danger that it poses. A lot of my political writing in recent years has been about that and about the need to make alliances with people who you might otherwise disagree with. So, you know, there's, there's no way that you would know this, but this is just kind of an interesting fact. And basically in the weeks before the inauguration, in the, in, at the high point of the crisis, um, and during the period of the, that led to the January 6th uh, assault on Congress, I basically was uh, corresponding pretty regularly and even had a long, like a phone conversation uh, with Bill Crystal, William Crystal, the former chief of staff of Dan Quayle, the very important neoconservative and someone with whom, you know, I used to basically disagree with on almost everything. But he is a very important never Trumper who has been a strong, um, not only critic of the entire Republican party, but a strong advocate of uh, constitutional democracy. And um, so we, it was strange that we were like checking in with each other, but in fact, we had a certain kind of like commonalities, which are very important and remain very important. And those, so there are legitimate political, there are legitimate political differences among people who are committed to constitutional democracy. And then there is the fact that there exists a movement, Trumpism, which completely controls one of the two major political parties in the US, the Republican Party. And it is not committed to constitutional democracy. In fact, it's committed to the subversion of constitutional democracy. Yeah. And um, 
Yeah, going from there, uh, you know, the point has been made a lot that you made that um, Trump is a symptom, but also Trump represents a movement in addition to being a person. Um, oh, yeah. And, uh, and what we saw on January 6th and what we're seeing in prosecutions now, um, especially with the likely incoming AG, um, you know, Merrick Garland is uh, what's happening. What is the Trumpism that's among us, you know? So I wonder what you're seeing there. Uh, is this something that's gonna be like the 9-11, you know, committee that was looking at, uh, at terrorism uh, or is this something else? Are you asking me about the commit the commission that Pelosi's talking about establishing? What I think about that? No, I'm talking about strategy, I guess. Like whether or not they establish that commission, is this the same kind of problem and it, does it need the same kind of attempts or remedies? No, it's a very different it's a very different kind of problem. So so uh, th there really was a, an al-Qaeda threat. Um, and the 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 attacks on 9/11 really happened. And, um, and it was necessary to deal with them in certain ways that, uh, you know, I actually supported the, uh, basically the war in Afghanistan. I didn't support the war in Iraq, but in any case, um, that was nothing compared to this. This is, uh, that was basically a geopolitical phenomenon that was not rooted in any way in this country. Um, and, was perceived as being like basically uh, a danger to the homeland as a whole. By the way, I never liked that rhetoric and that concept of the homeland, but putting that aside, um, there was kind of almost too much of a consensus about the need to fight Al-Qaeda. Uh, there's, there's not even a consensus that there was an assault on the Capitol on January 6th here, okay? So like deeply rooted in the political culture is this right-wing extremism, which is linked to guns and a long history of uh, kind of militia type thinking and pioneer myths and um, a, a kind of a settler mentality, uh, which is often very racist. This is deeply rooted and it's, it's not only rooted in the civil society, it's rooted in one of the two major political parties. The Republicans control most of the state houses and state legislatures in the United States. And I think at the local level, and at not in Bloomington, but th the rest of this state, um, they're very, very right wing. Probably more right wing even than Mitch McConnell, you know, definitely. And so, uh, and that's the problem that Pelosi is facing with this commission because there was a bipartisan commission on 9-11 and, and there was a bipartisan, there was, the Watergate was bipartisan. You know, uh, the, the, the Iran-ContraGate scandal had uh, generated a commission under Reagan that was bipartisan. It's almost impossible to have a bipartisan commission on this because one of the parties is part of the problem. <laughs> so it's very serious, very serious. Uh, Jeff, you're making me think about a time in my life some time ago when I was a Reuters correspondent covering events in Belarus. And I saw the emergence of Alexander Lukashenko as um, the authoritarian ruler that he has since been. Much to my astonishment, I can't believe he's still there. But there's a big lesson um, there, I suppose, that you know the big question about authoritarian rule is not so much how bad can it get as how long can it go. And so I, I, it's making me think about a column that you wrote talking about not necessarily direct parallels, but 
you know, the implications of the street um, protests that we've seen erupting in Belarus in a way they haven't in the past and what the lessons are for people trying to oppose authoritarian leanings um, in the United States. So I just wonder, looking back on that piece which you wrote in August last year, um, where do you think that sort of parallel stands now? Well, first of all, that, that, that mode of thinking and that parallel that I was drawing was part of a, a much a broader and longer term kind of effort on my part to be, to be linked to, um, to public intellectuals and activists and academics and citizens um, um, in other countries, but especially in post-communist Europe who are, who are who first were struggling to achieve democracy and are now struggling to, to sustain it and to ward off threats to it. And, and, and this, this group that I'm involved with that I sometimes publish with the Democracy Seminar is, it's kind of a, a, a global community of correspondence is how its founder, Jeff Goldfarb, my friend, described it. So, and you know, we, we're, we have people from Belarus and Slovakia and Poland, Hungary, India, Brazil, uh, you know, lots of different places are part of a common conversation about, uh, about fighting against authoritarianism. Um, so, the, but the point about that, that, that piece was drawing attention to the fact that could Trump do what Lukashenko was doing? And basically, what he, which he couldn't do, okay? Use, use his control of the state to suppress an opposition and stay in office in spite of the fact that he lost an election. And, and then would there be a popular uprising as took place in Belarus? Now, in fact, you know, Trump was never the dictator that Lukashenko was, and he was constrained in certain ways. Um, by the way, I don't, think it, I don't think it was foolish for some of us to worry that he might try to bring the military into this. He did this over the summer and the military actually was very public that it would not be drawn into this for the first time. Why would the Joint Chiefs of Staff publicly say this? They've never said this before because they saw that there was a chance he was gonna try to draw the military in. So there was that possibility, but it didn't come to pass. So the, the way that the quote, quote unquote coup or the uh, stop the steal, quote unquote, uh, happened was not through a repressive maneuver by the president, but by inciting this kind of popular upsurge, which it, you know, it, it was very serious, but it was not, they were not gonna take over the, they were not gonna take over the government. I mean, I, I think it set in motion a very dangerous set of possibilities. So fortunately the link, Lukashenko uh, uh, parallel, uh, you know, didn't come to pass. Um, but of course, if Trump had been, if, if Trump had been reelected, which was certainly possible, or if he's elected again, I think th that becomes a much more dangerous situation. Uh, what Biden said in the campaign about the election was true. He, he, he kept saying something like, um, we survived four years of this, but I don't think our democracy could survive another four years. A lot of people said this. I believe it. I think it's true. And so at the very least, this four years is a breathing space and an opportunity to kind of like redouble efforts to, to defend democracy. Well, 
on that note, Jeffrey Isaac, the James H. Rudy Professor of Political Science here at IU Bloomington, I would just like to wish you many more years of continuing to make great public discourse happen, um, wherever you happen to be writing. Um, and I would like to thank you very much for coming on Through the Gates. I'd like to thank Violet Barron for co-hosting with me, Elaine Mona, um, here at our very favourite podcast and wish you an absolutely wonderful day.